I want to take, uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, as we continue to look at this great epistle, all about being together for the gospel, uniting forces as the body of Christ for the cause of Christ, and uh, we're in chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and we left off in verse 11. And so let me go back to verse 7, and we'll just read what we studied last time. Uh, That will set the context for what we're going to look at this morning, verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever things were gains to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And now our text for this morning, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Father, we thank you for... um, this letter, we thank you for this um, apostle. We thank you for the example that Paul is to, to all of us as we press on in our walk with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this text to stir all of us up, to spur all of us on as we are all on this quest for godliness, this quest for Christ-likeness. And Lord, thank you that this is not something you've left us to ourselves to figure out or to uh, do in our own strength, but you've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, you've given us one another. And I pray that all of these resources that you have given to us and provided us would come together right in this moment to help us to be more like Jesus because of our time together today than we were when we came here. We pray this in, in his name. Amen. What is the one thing that you want most in life? Do you have some desire, passion, ambition, or goal that consumes all of your thoughts, controls everything you do, that requires tremendous determination and hard work. For David, his one thing was to live with the Lord. That was his all-consuming passion. He expressed that in Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, one thing, one thing 
I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. That was David's one thing. Mary, in the Gospels, her one thing was to listen to the Lord. In Mark chapter 10, we see the story of Mary and Martha uh, taking care of Jesus who had come to visit them in their home. And as Martha was running around trying to get everything ready for supper, Mary was just sitting there at his feet, listening to what he had to say. And she was frustrated and scolded Jesus for not doing anything about that. And he said, Martha, Martha, you're worried about and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part. And so for David, it was to live with the Lord. For Mary, it was to listen to the Lord. And for the apostle Paul, it was to be like the Lord. It was to be like the Lord. That was his all-consuming passion. And here in verse 13, he says, one thing I do. Just one thing. I forget what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Which we're about to see is another way of saying, I press on to be more like Jesus. Ever since... Jesus had chased Paul down and saved him on the road to Damascus. Paul had been chasing Christ with all of his might in order to know him more and to be more like him. And Paul's relentless pursuit of conformity to Christ is, I think, the finest example in all of the Bible that there's more to being a Christian than just the initial experience of coming to faith in Christ. I'm sure that Uh, the majority of you have had that initial experience. You're sitting here today because you are a Christian. You have come to know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But we also need to understand that God's plan of salvation involves far more than simply saving us from death and hell. He saved us to make us like Jesus. And so being a Christian is not only about coming to know Christ, it's ultimately about being conformed to the image of Christ. And so the Christian life is essentially a quest for Christ-likeness. That is why we are here today. We are on a quest to be like Christ. Every one of us as Christians should want to be and work to be as much like Christ as possible, to think like Christ and to act like Christ and to talk like Christ and to be motivated by the same things Christ was motivated by. I mean, that was Paul's greatest ambition, not only for himself, but for everyone that he led to Christ and everyone he discipled in Christ. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he said, my children, with whom I'm again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He wanted Christ to be formed in the, 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 the churches, the, the, the believers in the churches in Galatia. Ephesians 4, 13, he said this, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That was just a mouthful uh, to say, I, I just want to help you guys be more like Jesus. He told the Colossians that in verse 128, chapter 1, verse 28, that we proclaim him. Paul says, I proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man, you remember what? Complete in Christ, mature in Christ. Everything I do, my entire ministry, its focus, its purpose is that I might 
present a bunch of people who aren't just not going to hell, but who reflect Jesus Christ. And I think Paul's passionate longing to be like Christ just explodes from his letter to the Philippians like no other place in Scripture. And I think he intended his his personal pursuit of Christ's likeness to serve as an example, not just to the believers in Philippi, but an example for us to follow today. And like Paul, we must pursue Christ's likeness with the same kind of drive and discipline and determination as an Olympic athlete. I don't know if you care about the Olympics. I don't know if you care about sports. I would imagine most of you have at least witnessed some sports, if not played sports. You've witnessed it. You've watched it on TV, at least, sitting there on your couch, comfortably on your couch, right? You're not an athlete, but you enjoy watching other people suffer and endure all sorts of things, right? Do amazing things. But I think Paul, he had to be a a huge sports fan because all throughout his letters, he uses sports as an analogy for the Christian life. Particularly, I think his favorite analogy was that of a race. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he said, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course. Galatians 5, 7, he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who, who tripped you up in the race? 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, Paul said, at the end of his life. Probably the most uh, well-known passage where Paul uses the athletic analogy, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Well, again, here in Philippians 3, Paul likened living the Christian life to running a race. This is probably second only to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this race analogy here in Philippians chapter 3. And, and uh, what's interesting here is that Paul went from being an accountant in verses 7 through 11, we talked about that, um, to being an athlete in verses 12 through 16. In verses 7 through 11, Paul was explaining this radical reversal of values and passions and goals and hopes that he experienced when God had graciously opened up his spiritual eyes to show him that he was spiritually bankrupt. All the things he had prided himself in and trusted in to attain a right standing before God accounted for nothing, amounted to nothing, uh, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he said he, uh, first of all, uh, gave us an appraisal of his past, an appraisal of his past in verses 7 through 9, that uh, after he got done listing all of these things that he had at once counted on to earn God's favor, he renounced them all um, as having no value when it came to earning or attaining salvation. In fact, they were not assets, they were deficits, they were liabilities, because as long as he trusted them, they would, he would never be saved. But once he got saved, 
whatever he considered valuable to him before, he saw it as worthless when weighed against the treasure he received in Christ. And the greatest treasure, the ultimate treasure that he received uh, was, was righteousness. This righteousness that didn't come from his own work, his own effort, but the righteousness that, they, that came by God, from God, through faith in Christ's life and death in our place, which is the only way that we can have entrance or access to God's holy presence is, is, is if we're robed with the righteousness of Christ. And so he, he, he shares with us his, uh, an appraisal of his past, and then we saw last time uh, his aspiration for the future in verses 10 and 11, where he expressed his, his greatest passion and goal and hope was to, to, to grow as close to Christ as possible. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wanted to be as close to Christ as possible and as much like Christ as possible. And then we come to verse 12 where he essentially shares his attitude in the present. We know what he thought about his past. We know what he was thinking about in regards to his future. Well, okay, what does that look like here and now? In the present, Paul, what, what is your attitude now? And so that's what he shares, his present attitude in verses 12 through 16. And everything that he says in these verses is about being conformed to Christ. It's about becoming spiritually mature. And his tone changes here, and we can't miss this. It's important that we, we note this, that his tone changes from forsaking his own self-effort and trusting in Christ alone for his salvation now to following Christ and trying or striving in the strength that Christ provides for his sanctification. And so there's a transition there in the white spaces between verse 11 and verse 12. He goes from talking about salvation to, to sanctification. And we know salvation, or we could say justification, uh, is, is you could define it as a crisis of coming to know Christ. Typically, that's when we come to know Christ. Most of us had a crisis in our life that drew us to Christ. So there's the crisis, the moment of time, moment in time where we come to know Christ. And then sanctification, on the other hand, is the process of becoming more like Christ. And it's, and it's a lifelong deal. It doesn't just happen all of a sudden in a moment like our salvation did. And so here we have Paul's explanation and example of what it looked like for him to pursue Christ-likeness. And, and from his explanation and example, I think we can discern six winning attitudes that we must have in our lives in order to become as much like Christ as humanly possible. In other words, if we are to be conformed to Christ, there are a number of things we must know and do. And I've listed them there on your notes if you have a copy, a sheet of that, the sermon outline. You can follow along as we go through this. But the first thing that we need to, to know and do is we need to realize why we're saved to begin with. We need to realize why we're saved to begin with. Notice he says twice in verses 12 and 13, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, for I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Again, brother, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. That word laid hold means to overtake or to 
seize or to catch or maybe even to tackle something or someone. And I think the idea here is, is, is chasing someone down and tackling them. And the way Paul uses this word, I think this is a, a, just another wonderful illustration in God's word of the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's what Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. And what Paul is saying here is that God had laid hold of Paul before Paul ever laid hold of him. In other words, Paul was running away from Christ as fast as he could, as he could but Christ chased him down and, and really made a blindside tackle on Paul on his way to uh, arrest Christians in the city of Damascus. And Paul never saw it coming. He didn't think he needed to be saved. He, he didn't want to be saved. Talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. It's not like Paul was seeking salvation in Christ. And yet God graciously and mercifully chose to save Paul and use him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and ever since Paul experienced that jarring impact of Christ, blindsiding him on the, on the Damascus road, he had been seeking to lay hold of Christ. He had been chasing after Christ and trying to tackle Christ, which, by the way, you can't do. You can never catch up, at least in this lifetime. It's like the, uh, the most frustrating game of tag, the most maddening game of tag you've ever played, right? Somebody comes along and tags you, you're it, and you know, you're running away from them, they tag you, and then you've got to go chase them, and you can never catch them. That's it. I mean, Paul, God, Christ tagged Paul and said, gotcha, and he got up and started chasing Jesus, and he'd been chasing him ever since for 30 years, and he still hadn't caught him. But he wasn't about to give up. But the point is this, that, that Paul knew that's why God had saved him in the first place. It wasn't like, tag your it, here's your get out of hell free card, have a nice life, and I'm going to go off, run off and tag other people. No, it's like, hey, I'm going to tag you so that you can chase me for the rest of your life, to become like me. The New Testament is clear why God saved you, why God saved me, Romans 8, 28 and 29 and 30, for those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why God chose us before the foundation of the earth. He predestined, he foreknew that, that, we, would be, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes this, verse 13, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. ultimately be glorified, which will happen when we get to heaven. And what does that look like? What does it mean to be glorified? Well, you'll be completely, perfectly conformed into the image of Christ. In the meantime, that process is, is ongoing in our lives, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. 
In other words, as we focus on the glory of Christ, we are more and more transformed into his image. And so the reason why God saves us is to make us like his son. And if you've never thought about that, never had the Christian life just boil down to that, that, that could be a game changer for you. Like, wow, whoa, uh, that's, that's the whole point? Yeah, it's to make you like Jesus. So the question is, how's that going? Are you just someone that took the get-out-of-hell-free get card and, and just kind of kept living the way you're living and you're good and you're just waiting for Jesus to come back and you're not really, you don't really care so much about changing and growing? See, Paul's goal in living reflected God's goal for saving him. And, and, and it should be the same for us. We should live for the same purpose that God saved us, to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's why we should get up in the morning. That's what should drive us and motivate us throughout the day. Why, why are we saved? Why am I a Christian? It's so that I could reflect Christ as much as humanly possible. And so we need to understand, first of all, if we're going to be successful in the Christian race, we need to realize why we were saved in the first place. What is the goal of this whole thing? What is the end game? It's that we would be glorified. I failed to read that in Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 30, but ultimately that, that not only would he be, we would be justified, but we would be glorified. And so we need to understand that, keep that in mind. Uh, secondly, we need to admit that we still have a long way to go. Okay, I know the goal here is for me to be glorified, which is ultimately being conformed to the image of Christ, which will never happen in this lifetime. It'll happen when I get to heaven, when I see Christ face to face. So in the meantime, I need to be humble and honest and admit that I still have a long way to go. And that's exactly what Paul says. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, He said it a second time in verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I mean, this may have come as a shock to the Philippians to to hear that such a a spiritual giant like like Paul admit that he hadn't arrived yet. Really? Really? Paul? Man, we thought you were there, man. We thought you had reached the pinnacle of spirituality. I mean, here was the most committed, dedicated, spiritually mature Christian who ever lived, acknowledging that he had yet to reach spiritual perfection, even after walking with Jesus for 30 years. Now granted, he he had grown a ton since that day. He was born again on the road to Damascus. He had learned many important lessons. He had been greatly used by God to accomplish many marvelous things things for the kingdom. He had had won many spiritual battles in his Christian life, and yet he knew that he still wasn't all that God wanted him to be. He wasn't fully conformed to Christ yet. And that's because Paul knew it was impossible for anyone to achieve sinless perfection in this lifetime or on this earth. Not even someone like Paul could arrive or achieve a level of spirituality where where further growth or progress or development or sanctification is no longer required. I think it's important that you understand that there are 
some differing views of sanctification out there. Um, and we have to be careful that we have the right view, the biblical view. Uh, the first view is what's called the Wesleyan view because it was popularized by John Wesley. It's maybe uh, more known as the perfection or, or the holiness view. And, and this view teaches that a person experiences, when they get saved, they experience a, a once and for all surrendering of themselves to Christ that, that instantaneously and, and permanently catapults them to a state of sinlessness. And from that moment on, they live in a state of perfection where they no longer sin, they just make mistakes. The second view is the Keswick view. It was made popular by the, the Keswick movement in Great Britain uh, years ago. It's also called the higher life view, and this is uh, the view that a person, at some point after he gets saved... They have a second level experience of grace after salvation when they, they totally commit themselves to God and they rise to this new level of victorious and obedient living. And, and they might still struggle with sin at times, but they just, they just need to let go and let God and, and God will, will do the rest. They'll grow. Well, hopefully you, haven't, you know you haven't heard a biblical view, the biblical view yet, right? What's the biblical view? Well... It's often referred to as progressive sanctification, progressive sanctification, and that is that you and I experience a lifelong cycle of sin and repentance and renewal and growth and sin and repentance and renewal and growth and sin and repentance and renewal. Is that your experience? That's my experience. And this constant struggle will only end when we get to heaven. There's this, I guess the, the analogy that makes sense to me is it's like if you've ever been skiing and you're on that ski lift and, and you're going up the ski lift and, and there's times when you're going up and there's other times you're kind of dipping down and there's you're going up again and you're dipping down and sometimes you really dip down and then you go up again and eventually you started down at the bottom of the mountain and you end up at the top of the mountain. Even though there was some ups and downs along the way, there was a progression to make it up to the top of the mountain. And so this gradual process of spiritual growth requires both our discipline, our own personal discipline, but also requires dependence on the Lord. We've talked about this a lot, dependent discipline. It's like an oxymoron. It's like tiny or or jumbo shrimp, right? How can those both be true? Dependent discipline, that's what it requires. It may have been that the Judaizers that we learned about in verses 1 through 6 that were trying to infiltrate the church in Philippi, um, claimed to have reached some sort of sinless perfection by being circumcised or keeping the Old Testament law. And here, in contrast, Paul just honestly and humbly confesses his, his ongoing struggle with remaining sin in his life. And if you want to see where he really talks about this, you just have to go back to Romans chapter 7. We don't have time to look at that this morning. We we looked at it, I think, a couple weeks ago where Paul was just frustrated with his own sanctification, saying, man, I, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I, I know I should do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Even at the tail end of his life, at the end of his life, when he wrote his letters to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said he, considered, he still considered himself the chief sinner, the foremost sinner, the worst sinner he knew. The worst sinner who ever lived. That was Paul at the end of his life. 
He never felt like, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot better over the years. No, I'm a little, a little closer to Jesus now than I was then. No, he was like, you know, I am, I am the worst sinner I know. Which I think is evidence of his spiritual maturity. Here he was confessing that he was still in the thick of, of, of the sanctification process, and yet he was uh, still sinning. And I think the point is that the more mature we become in Christ, the more we realize how much more we need to grow to become like him. The, the closer we get to God, the further away we think we are from him, the more sinful we feel. I think that's the irony of sanctification. It, it seems like we're sinning more even though we actually are sinning less. Is that your experience? The, the closer you get to the, to the spotlight, if you will, the, the more you see your sinfulness. When you're way back here in the shadows, you, you don't feel like you're that bad, but as you get closer and closer to Christ, he exposes more and more areas in your life that aren't like him. And so this should create in us what some have called a holy discontent or a holy dissatisfaction, which is absolutely essential to our, our spiritual growth and progress in the Christian race. We must never allow ourselves to become satisfied with where we're at spiritually. And if we do, we're going to become lazy. We're going to become complacent. And that typically happens when we compare ourselves to others. You know, we're running along and going, huh, just pass that dude. Just lap that guy. I can, I can let up a little bit. I can slow down a little bit. Give him, give him a chance to catch up. And so we're tempted to become proud and, and apathetic and, and perhaps ease up a bit in the race. But that won't happen if we keep comparing ourselves to who? To Christ. See, when you compare yourself to others, you, you usually walk away feeling good about yourself. When you compare yourself to Christ, you're like, you know what? I've got a long way to go. And when we compare ourselves to Christ, we, we will never lose sight of how far we need to go to become more like him. And so we need to avoid overestimating our, our spiritual achievements so we don't become smug or slack off in the Christian race. On the other hand, I think we need to be careful, especially those of us who tend towards perfectionism. Any, anybody struggle with perfectionism? Um, we need to be careful not to get frustrated when we mess up, when we sin. We need to remember God's plan is progression, not perfection. Some of you might be thinking, okay, I'm a little comfortable, uncomfortable with that. That's like giving myself a, a blank check to sin, you know? Well, Romans 6, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? What? Absolutely not. May never be. And the point I'm trying to make is we can't allow ourselves to become discouraged and defeated and, and get down on ourselves because we aren't perfect. Because guess what? We're not. And we never will be. And that's not an excuse to sin and say, well, I'm, I'm not, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. As if it's okay. Oh, okay, it's a, your sin is uh, justified. No, but don't get down on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. And I think this often occurs when we, when, we, when we dwell on all the times that we failed to live up to God's standard in the past. And that brings us to our third uh, 
winning attitude here is we need to forget about the past. We need to forget about the past and, and stay focused on the prize. That's what Paul said in verse 13. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I like that phrase there, but one thing I do. Paul was a man of singular purpose. He had a laser focus when it came to, to living the Christian life. He was, he was living for what mattered most. His number one priority was to change and grow into the image of Christ. He wouldn't let anything or anyone distract him from that goal, and he modeled for us the power of concentration. And I think the secret to excelling at, at anything is really focusing on one thing rather than a bunch of things. We typically succeed, succeed when we specialize. I'm not Bo Jackson. Far from it. And neither are you. If you don't know who Bo Jackson is, he was one of the only guys that ever excelled in both the NFL and, and Major League Baseball. In fact, went to, I think he was an all-star in both of those realms, which is very rare for a guy to achieve that level of success. Um, kind of multitasking, if you will. Most athletes and most of us will only be good at one thing rather than many things, and so we need to be focused on one thing. What are you about? What are you going to focus on? Well, Paul says, I'm, I'm focusing on being like Jesus. I think one of the greatest hindrances to becoming like Jesus, to growing spiritually, to become, becoming mature in Christ, is when we keep looking back. Or as it's often said, when we live in the past. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. He, he forgot his past, which included both his many successes and his many failures. He, we already saw him ab abandoning all that he had inherited, all that he had achieved. He, I think he also probably meant here that he chose not to just focus all all of his attention on, on, the, on all the people he led to Christ, all the churches he had planted, all the sacrifices he made, all the sufferings he had endured for the cause of Christ. I, I forget about that stuff. I don't look back and kind of take inventory of my successes and so I feel good about myself. No, I don't forget about those things. Those are in the past. He also forgot about his many sins, his pride, his self-righteousness, or how about this, all the Christians that he had, had arrested and murdered, all the damage that he had inflicted on people's lives and the, the families of those that he persecuted. I mean, I, you can imagine that Paul could have very easily been haunted by the sight of Stephen being stoned as he was watching, holding the coats of the men who were stoning him. And yet Paul said, you know what? I forget what lies behind and I press on to where it lies ahead. Now, obviously, that's a lot easier said than done because we all know that you can't completely forget about the past. It's impossible to forget. But we can refuse to let ourselves be consumed with the past or beat ourselves up over the past or, or live with guilt and shame, which only serves to impede our progress. 
Listen, we could go around this morning and all of us, all of us have bad memories. All of us have things that we wish we could erase from our lives. But we can't. But we can choose to not dwell on those mistakes, those failures, those regrets, those missed opportunities, and and let them hamper our walk with Christ or hinder our spiritual growth and maturity. Even God himself says that he forgets our sins. Isaiah 43, 25, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. He says the same thing in Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive you their, their iniquity and their sin I will not remember, or I will remember no more. Now, if God is omniscient, in other words, he knows everything, how can an omniscient God forget anything? It's impossible. But I think what he's saying in those verses is that he no longer holds our sins against us. They no longer affect our standing with him or influence his attitude. They don't influence his attitude towards us. In fact, there's one verse in the Old Testament that says God takes our sin and he throws them behind him. That's what essentially what Paul's saying is, hey, that stuff's in the past. Don't turn around. Don't keep turning around. Move on. If God moves on, why shouldn't we? Now, I will say this. I think it's, it is appropriate to look back at the past in order to address maybe some unconfessed sin or unresolved, unreconciled relationships or situations where maybe biblical restitution was never made. I think, I think it's important to go back and sort those things out. But once they're sorted out, once they're reconciled, once they're resolved, once, they're, once restitution has been made, once they've been confessed, then we can't live in the past or go through life looking in our rearview mirror. It's hard to drive down the road if the whole time you're looking, at your, you're looking in your rearview mirror, right? You're bound to get in a wreck. And, and that's what happens it, it, when we dwell on our past sins and our f- past failures and grudges and regrets and even tragedies. It just slows us down in the race and, 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 and at some point it can even paralyze us. It can cripple us so we can't move forward at all. And if you're always stumbling and tripping up in your relationship with Christ, it may be because you're, you're trying to run the race like this. Well, what, what do you think is going to happen? That's why Jesus said, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't plow a straight line if you're looking back over your shoulder. So Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. We need to stay focused on all of our blessings, all of our privileges in Christ and all the good works or, or tasks that God has ordained for us to do for Christ. We need to keep moving ahead with hope and with confidence. And so we need to forget about our past and just stay focused on the prize. And then fourthly, we need to pursue Christ with every fiber of our being. We need to pursue Christ with every fiber of our being. Two times, once in verse 12 and once in verse 
14, Paul uses the word, the expression, I press on. You see it? Verse 12, I press on. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Remember now, Paul just got done admitting that he couldn't do anything to be reconciled to God by his own self-effort, but now he was asserting how he was exerting maximum effort in order to resemble Christ to a greater extent. Again, he's making a distinction between salvation, which is all God's work, and sanctification, which we do participate in. The word here in the, in the Greek, press on, was used to describe a hunter who is eagerly pursuing his prey, hunting something down, tracking something. Those of you that hunt, you, you get that picture in your mind probably very vividly of what it, what it looks like to, to just pursue that deer, to pursue that whatever it is you're, you're after, you're hunting. So the point is, this was an intense endeavor. One commentator called it a, a rough-and-tumble pursuit or sublime violence. There's a verse in Matthew 11, verse 12. It's an odd verse. It kind of makes you scratch your head when you read it, but this is what Jesus said. The kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Like, what is that all about? Well, I was helped years ago by reading a book by Thomas Watson, the Puritan Thomas Watson. It was called Heaven Taken by Storm. And his whole point was, what Jesus meant by that was that we need to be aggressive in our pursuit of Christ. There needs to be a holy violence, if you will, as we, as we pursue Christ and going to heaven. And so when Paul says, I press on here, he's, I think he, he, he's using that word to describe how he was straining every muscle in his body, just like a runner when he comes around that final corner and he's going down that home stretch and he's going to the, for that finish line and when he finally gets there, he's what, straining every muscle to get over that, that finish line. I think that after Paul was saved, he pursued Christ as violently and aggressively as he pursued brutalizing more and more Christians before he was saved. I mean, this was the guy's personality. And so there was no time for him to rest on his laurels. He never plateaued in his spiritual life. He was constantly climbing. He was relentlessly running. He was persistently pursuing the prize. He says, I press on, verse 14, to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I think Paul likely had in mind there a winning athlete, the picture of a winning athlete who mounted the victory stand and and received the prize. Just much like when when we've watched on TV, right, the Olympic athletes uh, today, they'll stand on that three-tiered platform or podium and they'll receive the medal and they'll get that little wreath or gift and then they sing along to their national anthem, this idea of of an award ceremony. Paul, Paul never actually tells us what the prize is. And we assume we know what the prize is. He's been talking about this for the last, you know, whatever verses here. 
But to be specific, this, this prize, what is this prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? I think it has to include everything that we know that heaven will be. That we'll hear, part of the prize will be hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That'll be part of the prize. There will be an award ceremony, by the way. Romans 14 says we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3, Christ will test the quality of each man's work, and if any man works remains, he will receive a reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or, or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul said, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. What will those rewards be like, look like? Apparently there will be some sort of crowns which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Uh, 1 Peter 5.4, Peter was looking forward to the chief shepherd, Christ, appearing and receiving the unfading crown of glory. It may not be a literal crown that we get. It's, it's righteous, perfect righteousness. It's, it's, it's glory. It's, it's the glory of heaven. It's the, having a glorified body. It's all of those things. It may not be a literal, not like we're going to be walking around with a bunch of crowns, with our crowns on. This is my crown for Monday. This is my Tuesday crown, right? This is for my crown for this accomplishment or this missions trip or this whatever, right? No, it's just, it's being there. It's the crown of righteousness. It's the crown of glory. And ultimately, we will be crowned with Christ's likeness. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So heaven will include all of this and, and so much more. And, and ultimately, none of us will ever know everything that we'll experience in heaven until we get there. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. We don't know. We don't have a clue. I know a number of you are reading the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I've talked to two individuals in just the last few weeks who are reading that book, and it's just opening up their eyes, going, wow, I never thought of a heaven like this before. But even after reading Randy Alcorn's book Heaven, we still only know a little bit, right, of what heaven might be like. I guess all we can know is that this prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, in other words, why did God call us out of this world? Why did he call us up to be with him in glory? Well, it has to encompass all the purposes of God that he had in saving us. It, it, it represents our eternal inheritance as one of God's children, which is ultimately to be with him and to be like him. That's probably the simplest way to understand the prize. It's to, we get to be with Jesus. And, 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 and on top of that, we get to be like him. And so we need to press on towards that. We need to pursue this prize, the prize of being with Christ and being like Christ with every fiber of our being. And then number five, we need to remember that we're not alone. We're not in this alone. Notice verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything, 
And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. You say, that sounds confusing. He just said he wasn't perfect, so why is he saying that there are some people who are perfect? Well, Paul may have been referring sarcastically to the Judaizers who, who thought they had attained sinless perfection. I think it's more likely that he was just addressing those in Philippi who were spiritually mature. That's the word there, teleon, teleos, the word for maturity. Those who shared his, his quest for Christ-likeness. I think one of the marks of, of a mature Christian is that they have a desire to be increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And Paul assumed, he just assumed, that every mature believer would share this passion, his passion, to be like Christ. This was the norm. This was not, oh, he's just kind of a crazy man. Oh, that's just Paul. You know, he's a little over the top. No, this is the norm. All of us should be like this. And yet he knew that there were some who weren't like that, who didn't think that way, who, who didn't even agree with him, even though he wished everyone did. He had already asked them, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. I wish you were on the same page with me on this. But he knew there was nothing more he could say or do to convince them that perfection in this life was unattainable, and yet we still need to keep striving toward that elusive goal. And Paul said, God will reveal that also to you. Paul was confident that God would change people's minds and hearts in his way and in his time instead of, instead of trying to be the Holy Spirit in people's lives, trying to force them to see things his way right away. Paul just simply entrusted them to God and was willing to patiently wait for the Holy Spirit to bring them around, to change them. I think that's the same approach that we need to take when people maybe disagree with how we're living our life or how we think they should be living their life, we need just to graciously give them some space and some freedom to grow and to change at, at God's pace rather than our own pace. But notice the point here is, remember you're not in this alone. Notice that in verses 15 and 16, Paul switched from singular, from the singular to the plural. Everything up to in verses 12, 13, and 14 is I, 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 I. And then all of a sudden in verse 15, let us. Verse 16, however, let us. Paul was inviting the Philippians to, and, and not just the Philippians, but every believer in every generation to join him in this all-out pursuit of Christ-likeness. And he was... He regularly exhorted others to follow his example. Verse 17, in fact, we're going to see next time, brethren join, in, brethren, join in following my example. I exhort you, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. He wanted others to, to have what he wanted, to want what he wanted. Why? Because he, he knew that in order for us to, to win the Christian race, we needed the encouragement of fellow runners. Hebrews 10, why, why should we come to church? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, it says to, that we should consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to spur one another on, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more encouraging one another as you see the day drawing near. 
So Paul was modeling for us and exhorting us to pursue the prize alongside other like-minded believers so we can support one another and spur each other on. I mean, the church is like a big track team. I mean, you can go be that guy that I see running out on 105 and he's just this old crazy guy and he just runs like he's like a marathon man. He's just crazy. I'm like, dude, that guy, like he ran from like Navasota or something. Where's that guy coming from and where's he going? And I just back and forth, up and down. I'm like, that guy's crazy. How does he do that? I just get tired looking at the guy. But if you ever ran track, you know how, you know, when the coach said, you know, go out and, and run, you know, and you had to go by yourself, that was no fun. But when he said, hey, go out as a team, you had, a, you had fun, relatively speaking, right? It was funner. It was more fun. Right? Because you could be dinking around with each other and having fun and talking and, and encouraging one another. And, and what would happen is some guy started taking a lead and, and that, would, right? that would motivate you to go a little quicker. You didn't want to be that guy that came in last, right? So, so it, you, would, you would push one another and encourage one another and support one another. And that's what it takes. If we're going to hang tough over the long haul, we need this thing right here. We need close Christian companions who can be there for us when we get winded, when we get weary. And sometimes we've talked about this, the whole thing about drafting, right? When a team runs together, they, they take turns, you know, being out front. And, and the other guys, you know, he's pushing through that air and the other guy tucks in behind him. The rest of the guys just kind of draft. And then once they catch their breath, they jump out in front and the other guy gets behind them and he catches his breath and, right? We can do that together as the body of Christ. So we need each other. You're not alone. That's encouraging. And then lastly, and just quickly, don't ever let up. Stick with it no matter what. Stick with it no matter what. Verse 16, notice what he says here. He says, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we've attained. Literally, stay in line. Stay in your lane. Don't veer off the course. Don't go take a nap on the infield. Right? Stay in your lane. Keep running. And again, I think this was Paul's way of saying that no matter how mature you are as a Christian, you, you need to live up to the level of truth that you've received so far. We're all running on the same track. And by the way, we're not racing against one another. Right? We're, we're, we're pursuing Christ. He's out front. He's like that rabbit right, at the dog races, that the dogs are, let them, and they're saying that rabbit, they, they never, by the way, they never catch that thing, do they? And so we go out after that, so we're running together, and we're all on the same track, we all have the same goal, to catch that rabbit, to catch Christ, and yet we're all at, at all different stages in our spiritual growth and development. And, and listen, it doesn't matter if you're a babe in Christ, you just came to know Christ, or maybe you're a mature saint, have been walking with Jesus for years, God holds all of us equally accountable to put into practice as much biblical truth as we know and understand. You might remember Mark Twain, not that he was a Christian, but he, he, he said some funny things. And he said, quote, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. And that's, that's what you need to focus on. It's not the parts you don't understand, Listen, there's enough that you do understand. Focus on that. Living that out. Putting that into practice. 
And I think it's sad that some Christians just, just, just kind of remain in this state of spiritual infancy. They never grow to spiritual maturity. They're like the, the Jewish believers uh, in, in, in Hebrews 5 who never get past the ABCs. They never graduate from milk to meat. Why? Because they fail to become all that God intended them to be. They're, they're why? They're lazy. They're undisciplined. They're sporadic in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, work hard, be consistent, keep up the pace as best you can, and whatever you do, don't quit. Don't quit. Stay in the race. Probably the, the, one of the most familiar running passages in the Bible is Hebrews 12. Verse 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, examples surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, this isn't a sprint. This is, a, this is not a 100-yard dash. This is a marathon. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Again, it's endurance. It's all about endurance. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hang in there. Hang in there. And remember the words of John Newton the author of Amazing Grace, we all know that name. In his old age, he could no longer read. His eyes went bad, and all he could do was hear. And he heard someone recite 1 Corinthians 15.10, which says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this is what John Newton said. Quote, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world but I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father, some of us need to consider today as the first day of the rest of our life when it comes to pursuing you. Because maybe we haven't had this attitude that Paul had, but... That's in the past, and today is a new day, and we can start today. And so I pray that all of us would, 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 would set out of here, would take off, if you will, running or continuing to run, and that we would rely on Christ and his power, his strength. We would also depend on each other. But Lord, you would give us a a passion to be more like Jesus. That this would be what drives us from the moment we wake up to the time we go to bed to think like Christ, to talk like Christ, to act like Christ, to respond like Christ in everything we do, in every situation we find ourselves in. Ultimately, Lord, not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ, we pray. In his name, amen.